This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to season three of Climathon. This season, I'm talking to women across the globe who are at the forefront of climate science and climate action. Each guest is a thought leader in one or more of the drawdown.org climate solution sectors. What, you may ask, are the drawdown.org solution sectors? Well, important topics like renewable electricity, soil and agriculture, architecture, oceans, health, education, so much more. The goal of this season is, of course, to continue to help design educators incorporate a foundation of sustainability and regeneration into their courses and, in turn, inspire more climate designers. Climate solutions are already here. You can literally start being part of the solution today. Climify brings these solutions to you. So no matter what your skill or knowledge level, you can implement what you learn today in your personal life and classroom. I heard Anika Goss speak back in the fall of 2022 at the Cumulus Design Conference in Detroit, Michigan. She is the CEO of Detroit Future City. She was invited to the event to give an insightful keynote about climate adaption in the city of Detroit. I already had my notepad out from all the other speakers. And when she started talking, I continued to quickly write down some of the notes uh, that inspired me from her talk, including a quote she made that became the title of this episode, Informed Communities are powerful. I learned a lot from her work, and I hope you do as well in this second episode of the season. In terms of drawdown solution sectors, the discussion today with Anika will focus on climate ideas for food, agriculture, and land use. Hi, I'm Anika Goss. I'm the president and CEO of Detroit Future City in Detroit, Michigan. You can find out more about me and what we do at Detroit Future City at www.detroitfuturecity.com. Well, welcome, Anika, to the program. Uh, season three of Climify. I'm happy to have you here. And uh, thanks for spending the next 40 minutes with me. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yes, it's um, an honor to have you here. Uh, our listeners don't know, but I met you in the audience as you were giving um, a talk in Detroit, and I was taking notes, and one of my notes where I wrote was, okay, invite her on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so I've reached out to you on LinkedIn, and I'm happy you accepted. Great. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, I was looking into more of the work that you were doing after I heard you talk at the Cumulus Conference in Detroit of 2022, and you've had a really, really impressive career, still going, and I'm wondering what led you to the work that you're doing there in Detroit? Yeah, I. Uh, it's an interesting question. Um because this is sort of a veer from my path. But um, so I have been in community development and neighborhood work my entire career. 
I spent the majority of my career um, at Local Initiative Support Corporation, which is a community development financial institution that invests in um, real estate and community development activity and mm -hmm. low-income communities, both urban and rural. And uh, that's sort of where I grew up. I started working there in my 20s. I took a short break uh, from there to uh, work uh, for city government. And so I did a two-year stint in city government. What was and your role there in city government? Yeah, so I was the um, uh, Director of Philanthropic Affairs, which oh. was a new title. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a cabinet level position, uh, and I led um, the mayor's next Detroit neighborhood initiative. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, under the Kilpatrick administration, okay, which a while uh, ago. was very controversial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, it was, I feel like, some of my best work, to be quite honest, since, because I was, he wanted this to be his legacy project, mm -hmm. the next Detroit neighborhood initiative. So I was completely uh, isolated from all of the chaos. Oh, that yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not him. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm really proud of the work um, that we that we did there. Um, and so I went back to Lisk and went on to when he went to jail. I went back to Lisk and uh, went on to. Um, uh, become uh, the vice president of their sustainable communities initiative, which was more of like not sustainable, environmental sustainable, sustainable in terms of uh, economics, just sustainability and comprehensive neighborhood development. And then I became a, um, a regional vice president um, with seven cities in the Midwest and Pennsylvania. So. Wow. Yeah, so I've I've spent a lot of time in cities all across the country, trying to understand how they work, trying to come up with solutions uh, for cities. And so about that same time, my children um, were in middle school and high school, and it was really clear that my son was not going to graduate from high school unless I was there to jump out of the bushes to tell him to go <laughs> homework yeah. after school. And so I made a promise to both my kids that uh, in 2015, that I would be back in Detroit and mm -hmm. uh, working in Detroit, even if I was the new manager at Kroger. Yeah, you went uh, back for family then. Exactly. And uh, and I had expected to only stay at Detroit Future City, which at that time was a very small, troubled organization coming off of this major planning process. I had only planned to stay until my kids graduated, which would have been like three years. And now I'm going into my seventh year wow, at DSC and really enjoying the work. So, well, what is so Detroit Future City is where you are now. Yeah. Uh, what what is what is they what do they do? What what's their mission? Yeah. So essentially, Detroit Future City is a think tank, and um, there are a few of organizations like us across the country where we practice both research and practice. 
And really what we do is focus on um, economic opportunity, um, reducing racial barriers um, to economic opportunity and environmental sustainability. And we do that through research. We do that through um, community engagement and um, community practice and environmental um, practices, large and small, whether it's green stormwater infrastructure or helping uh, communities design and plan gardens in their neighborhoods. So do you host events for the community? How does it all come together? Yeah, yeah. We Well, when we were more together, uh, we did a lot of events. Mm -hmm. And um, I was one of the things that I was really kind of proud of was that I did not want a chicken dinner event. I felt like people deserved to, if they were going to hear about research and if they were really interested in the work we were doing, they should come to a wine and cheese gallery opening. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did for the community. And we had literally wine and cheese and appetizers like you would at any other gallery event. Yeah, of course. Where we had a talk and we had pictures and yeah, so it was a lot of fun when we were in person. That's how I survived in graduate school in Austin is I went to gallery openings for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, free samples at, at, at grocery stores and... <laughs> Gallery openings was very common uh, for me. Yes. <laughs> so you're, yeah. you did a lot of community organizing work prior, but um, also during like, yeah. your current position. And you have a master's in sociology and community organizing from the University of Michigan, my alma mater. Uh, yeah. Nice to meet you. <laughs> go yeah, Blue. Go Blue. Yeah. yeah. How, has, how has that community organizing background not just from your education, but from other places, really helped with these yeah. neighborhood and community events for you? Well, I, I feel like, and I was a really young um, organizer coming out of graduate school that knew absolutely nothing about a lot of the neighborhood. I grew up in Oakland, California, and even though I'm a third-generation Detroiter, oh. I... I really didn't know Detroit when I, when I came out of school. And so I, um, it was really important to me that people understood what was happening to them and around them. And that the people who were living there had a voice in decision-making. And that has been, that's something that I, that I was not only taught in graduate school, but I was also, I, that I practiced, that I actually learned in the streets of Detroit, that people have all kinds of agency and information that they, just because you're poor doesn't necessarily mean you are uninformed or ignorant about the ways of the world and you can see what's right. happening around you. And so it was always really important um, for me to, um, you know, honor that, that this is where someone, not, someone else lives, that I don't live here. Mm -hmm. And so the decisions that they want 
that they're making and the decisions that are happening and, and are affecting their neighborhoods. Um, if me as someone who they might trust because I look like them, um, that's a privilege to have yeah. in that community. And I, I deeply, deeply respect that. And I've carried that while I don't, you know, hit the streets as much any longer. Um, that is something that's really sort of driven my own personal mission, my own, how I lead the organization, how I, I prioritize my staff to lead in the work that we do at DFC. I remember a statistic about Detroit where it's 90% BIPOC. Is that, is that that's right? That's yes. accurate. Yeah. So I'm sure that with your organization, right, speaking to those different communities, it's, it's, I guess, potentially that they view you as part of the community there, even though maybe you came over from Oakland. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, some of it, like Detroit, DFC is not 100% Black. We're not, yeah, you know, right. we're more like, I don't know, 65% or something like that. Um. However, I do take a lot of pride in that Detroiters feel ownership because of the original framework, good or bad, whether they liked the, whether they had a good experience mm -hmm. in their process of the, the original strategic framework or not. I take a lot of pride in that they feel like they can trust us enough to be honest about whether or not what, we could, what we're doing is right or wrong right? Yeah. And, and that when I came to DFC, um, like a lot of organizations and a lot of really well-meaning white people, the staff at the time had been accused of being racist and insensitive. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, and so they were, there was a lot of anxiety around going back into the community, going to community meetings, showing up. And I was, it was just really a priority that as an organization, no matter how you felt about us, we are a part of Detroit. We, this is Detroit's, we, this, the organization that we're building belongs to Detroit first. And we, you can't be, you can't let this accusation, you can't own that, right? And so whether you're white, black, Indian, otherwise, and those are all of the people, Latina, all of those people work at Detroit Future City. Mm -hmm. Everybody has to be okay with talking about black people and Hispanic people and uh, foreign born people. You have to be okay with it. You have yeah. to be able to ask questions and understand and have this really healthy uh, respect for who is living and working in Detroit. How old is Detroit Future City as, a, as an organization? As an organization, it's, I was the first employee. So it oh, incorporated, wow. yeah, so it's seven years old. Seven years old. So yeah. they, the communities know about it. So that's, I think that helps, right? It's not like so, a brand new startup coming from yeah. out of town. So the framework process that I referenced, the Detroit Strategic Framework, is the largest community planning process in the United States. And that framework process really laid out 
the 50-year framework uh, for Detroit. So what Detroit could and should look like in 20 years, 30 years, and 50 years. Okay. So that was before you. That was before me. That was before Detroit Future City became an organization. I see. Okay. And so it was a part of city government at that time and uh, under the Bing administration when it was the, so like you probably heard about like the theories about closing off and decommissioning parts of Detroit as a plan. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Michigan and it's it's always, yeah, it was on the news and, and all that. Yeah. And so that, that started, that process started in 2010 mm-hmm. and the framework was completed in 2012. And so between 2012 and 2015, 16, um, DFC was an, an, a program of the Detroit Economic Growth Association Corporation. And um, they were really responsible for carrying out the initiatives that came out of the framework. I see. Okay. And you mentioned something actually really important that I also learned and experienced trying to work in communities. This this specifically didn't happen to me, but a friend of mine, outsider coming into a community, mm-hmm. predominantly black, and... Mm-hmm. I'm going to help, right? He's also white. And yeah, yeah. And I remember the first person he talked to, like rolled his eyes and said, okay, well, we don't want our um, property taxes to go up with some of your plans. So mm-hmm. um, he backed off and, and said, okay, I get it. I'm Different not, approach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's, <laughs> so you co-design with yeah. the communities. And I think that's really important because you're, viewed as part of Detroit mm-hmm. and you're helping them, but they're helping themselves. Can you talk a little bit about how that all works and why that strategy works so well? Yeah. Um, that co-design, um, well, so one, we, almost everybody at Detroit Future City has some technical expertise we're an organization of architects and urban planners. Um, we even had an engineer on staff at one time. And um, so having that kind of technical expertise is valuable in the community. So the way we approach the work is we can help you do this because we're architects, we're landscape architects and urban planners. So we can help you do this, but you have to really guide this, right? Like Got this it. is your, what do you want to see in this neighborhood? Yeah, and it's your neighborhood. It's your neighborhood. So you, we can tell you whether or not someone would be willing to pay for it. We can tell you whether or not it would actually work physically, because maybe you don't know that, right? Yeah. Um, and we can even tell you like, well, if you plant these kind of flowers only, they're all going to die and not come back. You know, like we might have that kind of information, but this is really their vision. I and see. I think one of the best example, like a teeny tiny example of that was um, we ran this program called the Field Guide to Working with Lots. And we gave out many grants 
uh, to block clubs, churches. It was really, it was my fav- one of my favorite programs because we would literally get handwritten proposals from block club presidents. So Mrs. Jenkins and her friends that live in her neighborhood want to do something with the, with the vacant lot on their block and they're yeah. writing their proposal in script, right? <laughs> so, cursive, cursive handwriting. Cursive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, I loved that. I loved it, right? But, you know, we're also a bunch of architects and mm. landscape architects and designers. And so they want petunias and, you know, yeah. um, all kinds of pretty flat rows of flowers, even though the design calls for all kinds of, you know, environmentally sustainable plants that aren't as, you know, some of them might be pretty like the sunflowers, but most of them, you know, look more like meadows and rain gardens and that kind of stuff, which isn't always pretty and looks terrible in the off season, right? Yeah. That's not what they wanted. And so there was debate in the, you know, they were, the staff at the time was really like, well, they can't do, that's going to look terrible. Everything is going to be dead by November. And then they'll just going to have to keep replanting it in the spring. And I was like, so what? This is their neighborhood. They're planning annuals, right? Right. <laughs> this is their neighborhood. They want to plant a bunch of annuals and petunias and all of that kind of stuff. That's fine. They yeah, like of that. Course. Well, one thing maybe it's important here. I grew up in Michigan. You're in Detroit. I don't know yeah. if all my listeners know what's going on in Detroit. What's okay. like the basic history of Detroit over the past decades um, maybe we can start there because I think that's going to be important when we talk about the success stories that you've had. What's been going on in Detroit? Where where does it stand now? Where do you, where do we, how far back do we go? Oh my gosh. I, I feel like we probably have to start 1950s, right? Like that's, okay. that's a pivotal part of Detroit. Yeah. And before, you know. Well, and I would go, so if you're going to start in the 50s, I would start in the 30s. Okay. Because in the 30s, the Hulk maps were drawn. And the federal house, the the uh, FHA, Federal Housing Act, or the Home Mortgage Act, um, was really what led to redlining, where okay. they had areas or shades of areas in Detroit that were uh, listed as high risk and uh, areas listed as low risk. And they were high risk for mortgages uh, and low risk for mortgages. And those high risk for mortgages, mortgage areas were neighborhoods where during the 30s, African-Americans and most uh, Jewish households were not allowed to live in those communities. Mm. There were more um, neighborhoods for Jewish communities, but not many. Mm. And um, Jewish and immigrants, for Black people, you could only live in what was then called the Black Bottom, which is the Lower East Side, and in the North End in the 30s. 
and which is just west of, but just east of Henry Ford Hospital and just west of what we now know as I-75. Okay. And, uh, and then later they allowed um, for black families to live in Southwest Detroit. And I think mostly Southwest Detroit or, and it's not South, Southwest, what we think of today, like Mexican town. It's more like um, just the Northern edge of Southwest Detroit. And, okay. and I think it was because it would have been adjacent to where Henry Ford had recruited Mexicans to work in the Ford Rouge plant and uh, the plants that were in that part of the city. So that was really a lot of how Detroit was built. And then what ended up happening in the, so that was the 1930s. It right after World War II was the GI Bill and the GI Bill allowed you to, gave you basically a housing voucher. And that housing voucher allowed for you to live anywhere. Mm -hmm. And you could live, you were often encouraged to live outside of the city in newer housing or in areas that were even further out. And that then expanded the area that was considered high risk for African-Americans oh, okay. and, and others. So there were very few places where Black families could live in Detroit. And that ended up perpetuating well past the Fair Housing Act, right, in the 60s. And so it went from, okay, so we can't intentionally be uh, discriminatory, but we can still call it high risk. And in the what did they even mean by that? What do they even mean by it high meant risk? that it was high risk for bankers to give mortgages okay. to those areas. So it be it was law. In the between the 30s and the 50s. And in the 50s, it was no longer law. It was more like, uh, you know, de jure law where you, it was the, the realtors, the mortgage companies were just not financing I Black see. families in those places. Hmm. So it really limited no matter what you, you could be a doctor, a judge, and there were many black doctors and judges and nurses. My great aunt, my grandmother and great aunts and all of them came up from Lafayette, Alabama to Detroit in 1936. They were all college educated teachers. Mm -hmm. One was a psychiatric nurse. One had general secretarial skills. They were all forced to live in the same neighborhood. Yeah, it didn't matter then. Right. And uh, so in the 50s, after the GI Bill uh, and Detroit's population began to decline, people started moving. And that was where, you know, Detroit went from its height, began to really, really decline. And so then by the time we got to the 60s, there were African-Americans were living and much further, they were much more expansive areas of the city, but the concentration would have been that west side. So in the area in 19, the, the 
community where the great um, rebellion was in 1967, July of 1967. That's, that's a big moment. Right. There was, but you see, because there had been all of this leading up to it, it was concentrated in this area that was a Black community. Mm-hmm. And it was a thriving Black community. It was a community my mother lived in. Um, and she was, my mother was in college when in 19, that summer of 1967. She was at home from University of Michigan and mm-hmm. was trying to get home when the rebellion broke out and there were tanks in the streets and shooting and it was a really scary time. Yeah. And so then after that, after 67, I mean, you just, there was already this movement outside of the city. And then you began to see it really accelerate. And so from there, it just continued to decline. And so then when you began to see the auto decline in the late 70s and early 80s, more and more of the city began to become much more divisive right. and much and much poorer. So then people began to move because then you could move, you could live where pretty much wherever you wanted to live. And then by the 90s, I think the real coffin, you know, nail in the coffin, one of them, there have been many of them over the years. <laughs> was in the 90s when the um, it was um, the law changed where city employees, government employees did not have to live inside of the city. So the, the majority at that time, like let's, I can't remember what year that was actually passed. I'm going to say I think it was closer to actually 2000, but I think it was somewhere between 97 and 2000 when that law passed and you did not have to live in the city. But at that time, the majority of African-Americans that were residents of Detroit were also employed by city government and the public schools and the hospitals. Mm. So they could just and, leave. They didn't have to be in Detroit. And they did. Yeah. And they did. And so you continue to see this decline. So then by the time we get to the housing crisis of 2008, um, where Detroit was, so now we've gone from 2 million, now we've lost a million people wow. by 2000, right? Half the city just Over that left. 50 years. Jeez. Yeah. And uh, we're living outside of the city. And so, but we were still at a million, which made us like the 11th largest city in the United States. And so from there, the housing crisis in 2008, between 2000, by 2010, Mm -hmm. which would have been that next census, there were whole blocks that were left empty. We, some of that we just did to ourselves at that point. There were whole blocks. We, there was a accelerated foreclosure process at that time uh, for tax foreclosure. So we really began to see this enormous evacuation that was not of choice. And then some of it, you saw people sort of doubling up households 
uh, if they were families in crisis. And then other families were just packed up. I mean, Michigan was also losing population on its own. And so when you're losing population like that, because it was that time where we really dropped uh, to, you know, that below 700 uh, number. And we have continued to lose population since and then. So 700,000 people, now you're like 640,000 or something? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Wow. So like in, in that time frame, people left, there's buildings where they used to live. And these are in the neighborhoods. Are I know some of them being torn down. And so how would you describe then some of the neighborhoods in Detroit and then We'll we'll go into I think the 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 flooding and climate yeah component here because I think that is where I see a lot of joy and hope in Detroit. So it's you know it's really interesting and because uh, I really do have to you know there's a mayor for every moment in time that's I'm a big believer of that mm-hmm. and it's not all the time. But <laughs> Duggan is the mayor for right now, right? Good. And um, I think what we needed, especially after um, receivership, coming out of receivership, was this really intense economic development push. So if you go back to, there's a great film called Gradually Then Suddenly. And I would encourage your listeners okay. to check it out. I'll and have to watch really, it too. Yeah, it's really, it's a documentary um, about the um, bankruptcy process, like leading up to it. Was what that, happened when, during, when was that again, the bankruptcy? It was like 2010? No, it was 2013. 2013, okay. Yeah, which was after the Detroit Future City planning process, which was really interesting. So then that, really impacted people very, very differently. Um, so the bankrupts, Mayor Duggan was the mayor during the bankruptcy. And um, he listened, Detroiters were adamantly against it. And, w- but at the time, if you look at that movie, when you, when you watch it, for Detroiters now, very difficult to watch Mm. because that was the 2013 when that film was made it was a very different Detroit it was mostly vacant obsolete empty in all of the neighborhoods and it was really difficult uh painful to see that b-roll footage and now and you forget you see how easy it is to forget there's still neighborhoods, obviously, that look like that, but it's not the, the vast majority of the city the way it was. Yeah. Now, th- is it all suburban and clean and shiny? No. No. But <laughs> it certainly looks more intact. It looks, um, there might be large swaths of land that's vacant, well, that appears to be vacant, but it might also be open space. And so you're seeing much more intentionality now than 
I than I've seen that I can remember in Detroit. And I feel like that is um that there's so much optimism in that, right? Yeah. So I I I mean, so a mayor for every time he another mayor may not have done that, you know, may not have focused on like really sort of narrowly focusing on demolition on um redevelopment um the way this mayor has so that's made a big difference yeah it sounds like it and your organization um is a part of that sort of renewal i think in detroit pretty obviously and climate is impacting all of us yeah and it's impacting detroit through flooding and and what else is going on in detroit from climate change and can you talk about some of the success stories that you've had at Detroit yeah. Future City? Um, yeah. With so, building climate resilience. Right. So um, one of the things that I think I'm most proud of is I would definitely, you know, and I think you probably know this, um, the climate space, the, the environmental sustainability and climate change space is largely very highly educated, fairly elitist, and mostly white. Yeah. And there is an assumption that black and brown people don't care about climate change. Yes, I've heard that. Yes. <laughs> and I think what I, one of the things that I'm most proud of that DFC has been a part of is changing that narrative here in Detroit and changing it in a way, because I don't want to take credit because the justice, the environmental justice folks have been consistent over time and they are representative of black and brown communities in Detroit and Flint and in our most vulnerable places all over Michigan. Um, however, the table, the justice table and the environmental sustainability table are two very different tables. And all of the resources are at that environmental sustainability mm -hmm. table, whether it's education and technical expertise or just plain old cash. That's yeah. on the environmental side. And the justice side has to be the ones that struggle, right? And so what I'm really proud of is that we tried to create a table for both. And if you wanted to be at this table, you can be an environmental engineer. You can be from the University of Michigan, from Michigan State, Wayne State, yeah. private organization. But you're sitting at the table with the Sierra Club and We the People and Moses and as, uh, Southwest Detroit Environmental Vision, all of these people that spend all of their time and energy fighting for climate, uh, for climate change. And the reason that that table comes together is because from our perspective at DFC, climate, the impact of climate change is an economic problem for Detroit. Yeah. Climate change ends up trapping poor African American and Latino households in their neighborhoods. It devalues their homes and the land that they live on. 
and it keeps their children and their children's children from benefiting from ownership in addition to the toxins that that come from living in a climate vulnerable community mm-hmm. in the soil, water, and air. And so that for us, the economic uh, position of why climate matters in an urban neighborhood, in a poor urban neighborhood, is it just goes so far beyond race, right? You've bought this house on the east side of Detroit, and it floods like you were in a New Orleans bayou. Yeah, we're surrounded by water, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's there's some accountability that has to take place, Mm -hmm. you know? And the formula for fixing it is either there must be an economic development that's attached to it, or it must be so broken that your house is almost floating. Hmm. You don't or want it to get floating. to that point, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. But that's the only way that we end up fixing um, fixing it. So at DFC, we really want to get into these conversations, and people are opening them, open to mm-hmm. them. They understand it. They get it. They want a rain garden in their neighborhood. They want a rain barrel. And they're on the side of their yard. They're happy to take down their downspouts. Their children have asthma, just like everyone else, and they want it to stop. They know that their neighborhood smells, and they want that to stop too. So I, I, I really feel like this is this. What I hope in the future is that this conversation will continue. Yeah. So that. We are working with one table. Yeah. One of the, my favorite things you've said is not today, but in the past, when I've heard you speak before is informed communities are powerful. Yeah. Can you tell me what that, that saying means to you? Yeah. That, I mean, I think it goes to what we were just saying that people understand that their neighborhood is flooding because in part the state has not done its due diligence in managing the sub pumps and the seawall and that this mm-hmm. is preventative and that their taxpayer dollars go towards this. That neighborhood is very powerful. They have a whole lot to say about what happens in their neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so an informed neighborhood is a very powerful community. And so we're we're just happy to be an agent for that. When the ARPA money came down, we didn't try to host our own meetings. The city was hosting their meetings. However, we did explain to them and we created a document, a short document that said, if you're going to these meetings, here are the things you should ask about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because this is what you said you care about in your neighborhoods climate, jobs, what water and infrastructure, go ask about that. And they would go to the meetings with this two pager that we created. Now, is that two pager, would that define what DFC says is a climate resilient neighborhood? Or how, how would you define that? That two pager at the time was really reflective 
of our economic equity indicators of what we've been measuring. And part of that was um, a sustainable neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we believe is a neighborhood that's resilient and sustainable is also a neighborhood that has high quality infrastructure, whether it's water, lighting, sidewalks. There are a lot of neighborhoods that we really care about that don't have those things working. Mm. Can you talk about then, because uh, this is really interesting for me, is a neighborhood that you know of or you worked with that you would consider promising or on the right path towards that? You know, my favorite neighborhood, I'm really glad you asked me um, because my favorite neighborhood right now is the Forsyth East Okay, yeah, okay. And uh, they were already doing this work when we started working with them. They're informed. They were already, you know, yes, they were already informed. They already, it was already a neighborhood, a low density neighborhood with a lot of community gardens that were already in existence. So the planning process that we did with them was called a green loop. So how do we actually um, help them design a neighborhood with a green lens? And that green lens includes meadows, it includes forests, and we're partnering with them on actually building an urban forest in the middle of this neighborhood. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and gener- it was, it's great. And uh, it's funded by the National Fish and Wildlife Fund and General Motors contributed so that we can create walking paths and accessibility to the forest. And it's just beautiful. Mm. Um, but it also has meditation gardens and other personal gardens and hoop houses all in this one neighborhood. And the and community built that or did you the help community, wow. the community built it for the most part? We helped them with the design. Like this is what it's going to look like so that there for every vacant lot, there is a use. And they did that. We just help them with that, with the design. Um, it's a beautiful place. It really is. Especially, yeah. Okay. Especially in the spring and in the fall when everything is blooming and all of that. And yeah. Um, and and they're, they're very, we're still working with them. They need a land trust for that neighborhood so that they can, or at least, an overlay so that they're not vulnerable to, because the more we talk about it, the more developers already, yeah. They want to go in there, right? Exactly. (laughs) If we, so developers and realtors reach out to us at DFC, asking for that green loop plan, asking for more information so that they can market that neighborhood. And so it's hard to, keep them safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. made it too good and now people want to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you talk more about the the Chandler Park um, project on the, on yeah. the side of Detroit? That's another yeah. one I'm interested in. Yeah. So we were not a part of that, but Chandler Park um, is a, it, it was, it's a city park and it's a city park in the middle of what was once 
a really strong middle-class neighborhood mm. that's now more um, of a lower income uh, neighborhood that even has some old public housing that's adjacent to it. Um, but over time, the residents, the, the, the Community Development Corporation, Eastside Community Network, were, and pre previously it was named Warren Connor Development Coalition, really organized their neighborhood. And starting with um, residents that wanted to, that lived near the park, that wanted to be able to maximize the beauty and use of the park so that it was safe. And that was really all they initially cared about was safety. Got it. And then it became, we can go beyond safety. We can actually use green open space as a part of the value of our own community. And now they've been able to attract so many resources. A, it's, it has its own conservation board, the Chandler Park Conservancy. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful space. Yeah. There's, a, there's a water space there. So there's a small pond. There's now all kinds of wildlife that's returned uh, to this area. It's an active, beautiful park that the city actually lifts up as one of its premier parks in Detroit. And so this place where that was like open drug trafficking and really mm. unsafe is now this sanctuary and the residents that live around it are not wealthy or white. There might be some white people that live over there, but they're poor too. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> low income neighborhood. Yeah. And um, it's a it's a really beautiful space. And I think it's a testament to residents that are are informed about what their community could be if with the right resources and what they want to see in their own neighborhoods. Yeah, that makes me smile because the success of that and that I live kind of in an older part of, of my community and there's mm -hmm. a lot of places when I walk or drive by, I just kind of imagine them as what you just described. Like, yeah. what if this wasn't this parking lot where no one's even parking in? What if this was a park? What if there were wildlife here? And I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but I do this a lot where I just go for walks and I say, how would I change this space to be yeah. better, to be more green? Yeah, exactly. I need to get a job there. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that leads me to talk more about, um, as we start to come to the end here, about Detroit Future City okay. as an organization and Detroit. You know, what, what do you think is, is next for Detroit? How, how is Detroit Future City going to be a part of that next? What is what is success for you? Um, wow. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one of the major issues from, so first of all, I feel like as the president and CEO of Detroit Future City, I am a steward of the framework and the organization. I'm going to be one of, hopefully I'm one of many presidents. Yes. And um, I really feel like 
the future, my job was to build an institution that reflects the vision of Detroit and Detroiters. I think the future of what's next is to really focus on the racial equity barriers that exist for, that continue to exist for Detroiters. And the reason that is so important to me, not only as a Black Detroiter myself, um, but it's painfully obvious that without an extreme level of intentionality, we can continue to develop around these communities that we care, that we say that we care about. We can right. just build around them, right? Mm -hmm. Who cares if they continue to live in neighborhoods? Um, they should move. Well, the reality is they can't. No. They can't move. They're stuck for They're some of stuck. them. And so if I'm, if, you know, the future of what we're doing is to not only increase the number of middle-class African-American and Latino households that live in Detroit, that's one thing I want to do. The second thing is increase the number of sustainable, resilient, middle-class neighborhoods in Detroit so that the neighborhoods themselves are places that everyone would want to live. And once you get that really great job, you want to stay. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of, most of the nonprofits are focused on poverty and I get that and they should be, and they're doing an amazing job and we need them to do that. I really wanna focus on the majority of Detroiters and the majority of Detroiters are very close to living in, in poverty. Hmm. And as soon as they, and they move because it's easier to live someplace else. They can create stability if they live in a suburb where your taxes are lower, your housing costs are lower, and you have all the infrastructure that you want. Yeah. It's greener. <laughs> Everything is, you know, it's part of it. I want that for Detroit. Yeah. Well, coming to my last question here, and I'm curious, really curious about how you would do this. And that if you were to switch shoes with me as a design educator, um, how would you go about teaching a class or to a bunch of design students, knowing what you know, doing what you do? You know, it's so funny because I work with so many designers. Yes. And <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. We want to be a I'm part of the solution. You know? Right, right. Um, but I think one of the things that's really impo important for designers, especially designers that are working in communities of color, is there's an assumption that we are designing um for communities that look like suburban communities or high wealth urban communities. And at the end of the day, that is a very Eurocentric standard for what success looks like. Mm -hmm. When in fact, communities of color uh, live very differently in other 
places, right? Where, where they have choice. So mm-hmm. in Southern black communities, everyone is living in the same ne- neighborhood. My grandmother, aunts, uncles, cousins, you're all growing up in one neighborhood. And that entire neighborhood continues to perpetuate. How do you, do, and, and Latino neighborhoods are all living in one house. Everyone yeah. is living in the house. And yeah. it's a community of houses that are living like that. We associate that with poverty. Those two things, we associate that with poverty. Mm-hmm. When in we fact, do. we should be designing for community. And that community yeah. doesn't have to be a two and a half family, two and a half, you know, two parents and two kids and a dog with a garage out front. We don't have to live like that. You know, we can live with an aesthetic. If you are in a black and Latino community, you design for black and Latino people. Yeah, that's a great assignment because most of the time that's not, that's not what happened. Right. You said, no. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for being on the program, Anika. It was an honor to talk with you. I am a huge fan of the city of Detroit growing up in Michigan. I did not get there as often as I wanted to, uh, but going back there recently made all those good feelings come back about about the city. So I'm, I'm glad that you're there and doing the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It was my pleasure. Climify is produced, edited, and engineered by me. A huge special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on the new branding, Atul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their design help, and Brandy Nichols for her strategic guidance on improving the offerings of this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here, and you have a spare minute or two, we truly appreciate if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers. Well, thanks for hanging on until the end of the episode with Anika. I wanted to correct the record on something I said during the interview that was indeed incorrect. So thank you, Detroit Future City, for letting me know. Around 44 minutes in, Anika was sharing a story about East Forsyth that I later called Forsyth a few minutes after. The correct name for this neighborhood is actually East Ferry Warren, or sometimes Pole Town East. Detroit Future City has a great report on their work there on their website, DetroitFutureCity.com. I will also link to this directly in our show notes. Next week on the program, Dr. Genevieve Gunther from End Climate Silence and the New School will join me to discuss the language of climate politics.